That's a big thing to remember, everyone who's listening. Like, you are worthy, regardless of how many lines of code you write. Right? Yeah. It's important to remember that, and like, because it helps you kind of like step back and reevaluate your life, and really come back and enjoy your life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today we have Zach Wilson. Zach is a tech lead at Airbnb, building data pipelines. Previously, he worked at Netflix and Facebook. Zach graduated from college at the age of 20 with degrees of math and computer science. He has over 70,000 followers on LinkedIn. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be here. So, how did you get into data engineering? Oh, that's a good one. So, like. Earlier in my career, I started out as like a kind of data analyst, BI person, and then I learned about data engineering from this company called Think Big Analytics. I like, I was hearing everyone being like Hadoop, Hadoop, Hadoop. We gotta learn about Hadoop. This was like in like 2015, and、uh, I joined this company called Teradata, and they.、Um, And they taught me all about Java MapReduce and how big data works, and that really was like kind of the launching point for me into my kind of big data career.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really great. And previously, you worked as a software engineer. So, what is the difference between engineer working on data infrastructure and the data engineer? Oh, that's a good one. That's a very good one. So, I think of it as like data engineering. Usually ends up creating datasets that are directly actionable by the business. Like they are like, oh, like data engineering might track like retention or growth or revenue or things like that that are a little bit more business oriented. Whereas like a software engineer like who works in data might work more like on data infrastructure, like keeping the Spark cluster up or like working on、uh, like. Metadata management, like managing like data governance or something like that, like more of an infrastructure role. Whereas the you know data engineering is generally a little bit closer to the business. That's how I'd kind of say the the it's nuanced though. Like and they're like it's very blurry. They can get like like and I'm sure we're gonna get into that more later when I talk more about my role at Netflix, where I was I did kind of both. I was both like a software engineer data. As well as a data engineer, I did kind of both roles, and so like you, like you can do both, but the skill sets are a bit different. Okay, yeah, definitely want to dig into that. So let's start with your、uh, work right now at Airbnb.、Yeah. So can you describe what's your day to day like, and what are some tools you use? Yeah, for sure. So、um, my day to day is I'm a tech lead, so. About fifty percent of my time is spent on like leadership, strategy, and management, and the other side, the other fifty percent is on like technical work. And so、uh, I definitely spend a lot of time writing docs, a lot of design docs, and reviewing a lot of docs because I, I I I'm also the the data architect of my org. So whenever anyone has a design spec where they're going to create another data pipeline, I I have to review it. I'm the ultimate say of like. Whether to say like yes or no on whether or not this pipeline should exist, that's a big thing I do. I do a lot of reviews like that. Then I also、uh, write a lot of code. I,、um, Airbnb is a little bit different from some of the other big tech companies, where like I only write pipeline code in Scala, which is actually the minority of data engineering is done in Scala. Like、mm. only like、uh, about ten to fifteen percent of like data engineering roles are in Scala, whereas Most of them are in Python, right? Python is what everyone's all about,、um, and so I write a lot of stuff in Scala. I use、uh, Scala to like Scala Spark mainly. Scala Spark. Use a couple different other cool kind of frameworks and stuff. There's a thing called Sputnik that I use that is, it's it's like an entry point for Spark. So it's a way to like register all your inputs and then have them and have a Spark pull them in. And that、uh, makes it easy. It, Sputnik makes it very easy to do like data quality because it makes it easy to do like to swap out the partitions and to like run statistical tests and stuff like that. And so that one's pretty great. And then for like when I'm actually like you know scheduling the pipeline, obviously I use Airflow because it's Airbnb and you got to use Airflow. That's like it's like the number one technology Airbnb is known for. And、um, and so we use Airflow for that, and that's you know Python based, and we use like a bunch of different operators. And yeah, and another big kind of thing that I work on is this thing called the Midas process, which is 
which is a, a new thing that I've really taken to like is that like so the Midas process at Airbnb is around like it's a it's like kind of a process of how to create really high quality data so like um it's an eight eight step process that re that requires many different reviews many different uh things that need to happen and uh ultimately at the end you get a certified data set where then like if people look up the data set they, they see a gold stamp on it that's what hence the name midas mm -hmm. and um and then they're like okay this data set is trustable this data set is valuable and um those are the, the, like the specs and those um data pipeline specs that i was talking about earlier that i review a lot of them are that kind of Midas process sort of thing, right? And I work on that. It's pretty great. Like I, I really like it. I mean, uh, it's been it's been pretty great. Been there like almost nine months now, and uh, yeah, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing that. And pre previously, you mentioned there are some tools that allow you to do some statistical tests. Mm -hmm. So, how much data science do data engineers need to know? Oh. That's a good one. I mean, I would say not that much, like because a lot of the, stati the statistical tests are pretty straightforward. Like mm -hmm. it's where you take the count this week, look at the count last week, divide them. And like as long as it's within, you know, 80 percent or 90 percent, depending on what the data set is, it will yeah. be so there'll be some sort of threshold that is like between 90 and 110 percent. Like mm -hmm. it can only dr drop 10 percent and go up 10 percent. Like there's some sort of range. And you can determine that based on like doing some SQL queries to figure out like how much of a re how much is reasonable. Right. And those kind of checks are actually really powerful. Like they they fail, though. They actually fail. Like, for example, a lot of times those checks fail like on Christmas Day and people get mad because yeah. it's Christmas and people are like, why is my pipeline stopped? It's on Christmas. And it's like, oh, people are not like there's because Christmas is an anomalous day. The, <laughs> the, the behavior of people is just different on that day versus mm -hmm. like every other day of the year. And so those checks can have false positives as well. Right. Those kind of checks are kind of good, like just kind of week over week, month over month, day over day. Those are like the main, like I'd say statistical checks, but it's not even really doing anything fancy like regression or, you know, random forest or anything in the like, once you, once I'm out of my element, I just say those <laughs> words, right? Yeah. And uh, it's more just like counting and comparing things, mm -hmm. right? And I guess other good data quality checks that are really important, that are even more important than those are around like, is this column null when it shouldn't ever be null, right? Like yeah. checking if a column's null. Another thing that's super important is checking if uh, an ID is unique so that you don't have duplicates. Those those two are like so critical. And like for most pipelines, that's almost enough, right? Only if the pipeline has a lot of downstream do you really need to start doing those like statistical tests. Mm -hmm. So make sure that like there's not some other weird thing going on. The amount of statistics a data engineer needs to know is pretty light. It's pretty light, but it definitely helps to know that stuff. Yeah. I like the two data quality checks you mentioned. Are there some other uh, best practice in data engineering that you wish more people would know? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I think a, a very common thing that people need to start working on in, in data engineering is this thing called write, audit, publish. It's a, it's a pattern that you should do for pretty much every data set. And uh, how it works, right, is you never write directly to a production table, ever. What you do is you write to a staging table then, and that's called, that's the write, audit, publish is like a three-step thing. You write to a staging table, then you run your audit or your statistical tests. If they pass, then you publish that, 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 that partition into the, um, into the production table. And then it's, then, then, you know, it's good for cons downstream cons consumption, right? That was a really powerful way of preventing bad data from propagating, especially for like, if you have a pipeline that has like hundreds or thousands of downstreams, not doing that is very expensive because if, if you publish bad data and then the thousand pipelines that are downstream of you pick up that data and generate stuff, now you have to restart a thousand pipelines, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's like, that's start, like it's very expensive, right? And so that's where using write, audit, publish is like a very, very powerful way managing data quality and, and making sure that like your downstream consumers, like when you publish a partition to production, that's a contract and the contract says i like i believe that this data is 
as good quality as I have set up the checks to check for. Obviously, like things can fall through the cracks of checks every once in a while, but like checks usually catch like 90% of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. And uh, what are some common mistakes that new data engineers often make? And how do you avoid those? Oh, that's that's a good one. There's, so there's a long list there. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll name like a couple yeah. so that people can go through some things. I'd say one of them is around data types, right? Mm-hmm. So when uh, when you're working in data engineering, like you feel like if you just make everything a string or make everything varchar, that like it's easier, and it is because then everything just writes and it just kind of works, right? It's very flexible. Uh, the problem with that is that uh, especially once the data set gets very large, that's a painful thing to do because then like it's very slow, it's very inefficient. And like, um, and it can cause weird things to happen. Like, if say you have a um, a field that's actually an integer, but then they have they have the type be string. If then the the usability goes down as well, right? Because then if you try to do like sum, and then you put in the column string, then SQL gets mad at you because it's like, hey, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what I don't know what you're talking about. But then you query the data, and you're like. Those are obviously numbers and then you have to do like weird casting stuff, right? It's like, I'd say that that's actually the number one reason why you shouldn't do it is from like a usability perspective. Mm-hmm. And then the second uh, reason is like from the efficiency and reliability perspective. I think that that is, that's a big one. Another, another common thing I've seen is engineers who they write too quickly. They write too much code, right? <laughs> uh, and because they, especially people early in their career, they uh, they kind of view writing code as productivity. And that's like, they believe that like, that's how they're being graded or whatever, right? And if that's how they're being graded, then, then they're going to want to write as much code as possible. But what happens with that, I've seen it a lot, is if they haven't asked all the right questions, then a lot of that code gets thrown away, right? A lot of that code has to be redone. So another big thing is to, I've actually gotten this feedback in earlier in my career. I actually got this feedback as well, which is, um, and I remember uh, one of the senior engineers at one of the first companies I worked at, He, the feedback he gave me was like, Zach, you need to look before you leap, right? <laughs> <laughs> because that would happen where I would like get so excited and be like, oh, I know how to solve the problem. And then I just write all this code. And then I'd be like, oh, I got to take this part back and I got to like redo this piece. And like, so really thinking about a problem and also asking all of the questions and really f- like only really start writing code when you feel like you have a very thorough understanding of the problem. Because once you have a very thorough understanding of the problem, then every line of code that you write counts. And that's how you make the most impact, right? Is yeah. like, You only make impact if the line of code counts. It's not like we're trying to score who writes the most lines of code. It's who who makes the most impact, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's a that's a critical thing. I really think like asking the right questions is a very, very critical skill that like a lot of people earlier in their career like like make that mistake where they, they feel that way. Um, there's a couple other things too. Like another one that I think is a common one is like say you want to build a history table, right? And it, what it does is it tracks uh, the last 90 days of history for a user. A big thing, a big mistake that a lot of data engineers will do is they will write a pipeline that what it does is every day it scans 90 days of data, right? And it will, it, will, it will read all 90 days of data and then it will do a group by, do your sums and aggregations and then dump out the table and then you have your, uh, you know, your 90 day history. Uh, the problem with that is that like, there's a, a way to do it that's 88 times cheaper, right? And the way you do that is you build a cumulative table where it holds on to the last 90 days and then you just process today's data and then you join it with that cumulative table and then that is a way to process the data way faster and way more efficiently. And it causes, uh, you know, like just your pipeline to run so much better and so much smoother and just save a lot of money. And uh, and it's something I highly recommend, like learning about like cumulative uh, table pattern design, because that's another big thing that I've seen uh, a lot of like engineers make that mistake because because it's when you think about it from like the like the simplest perspective, just reading the daily 90 days of the daily data that is the simplest perspective right and that's and that's a good v1 but like really going to that cumulative table design is a good v2 i think mm-hmm. so thanks for sharing that i mm-hmm. love that you mentioned uh, um people sometimes dive into coding 
before asking questions. And as a data scientist, I have made the same mistake. So for data engineers, before you start coding, what are some good questions you need to ask your stakeholders? That's a good one. Um, I think a big one is around like, uh, how um, regularly do you need this data? Like what time frame? like whether you need it, like do you need data every hour, every day, every month, every year? Like, like how f frequently do you want this data refreshed? That's a very critical one. I mean, nine times out of 10, they're gonna say daily because that's like how most data pipelines work unless you have some very specific use case. Um, I think uh, some other questions are like whether or not it needs to be scheduled at all because sometimes pipelines you need to write a pipeline once right and it needs to run one time to answer one question and those kind of pipelines you want to push back on a lot of the time because mm -hmm. like they're uh sometimes like you need to do it because a very critical specific business question needs to be answered but generally speaking you want to push back on those requests and uh in, in favor of building something more robust something where you can build a data model that then the data scientist can maybe do a couple joins and because data scientists know sql too right they know sql too <laughs> and like give them a couple joins give them a couple tables that they can move around with right and then 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 they can answer those questions by themselves if you have the robust data model that is more like something that you want to maintain and create i think that that's a good question um Another good question that I think a lot of data engineers miss is, and it's getting more and more important actually, is um, how much data do we want to hold on to, right? And like how, like, uh, what should the retention look like? Because you know, a lot of companies there's there's pressure from both sides, right? There's there's pressure from the data scientists to be like hold on to all the data, right? They want to, like, they're like, don't delete anything. We, we like that data from 2013, we're going to need it. Like one day <laughs> we're going to need it. Right. And, uh, so there's pressure from the data scientists to like, because they want to be able to answer as many questions as possible. Right. And which makes sense. But then you all oftentimes will have pressure from like legal or from other places that are like, Hey, don't like, there's like policy requirements, right? Where it's like, you can't hold on to data longer than X number of years or whatever. It depends on the company. Um, and so there's kind of like these competing factors on like how to set good retention policies. And um, generally the way I think about it is you want to set a good retention policy that like gives your data scientist a little bit of buffer but not, not that much, not that much. Just like give them maybe just a little bit more than like what uh, you think is reasonable, but not that much more, right? And uh, then that, that's usually a good middle ground, assuming that it's not violating any legal or, you know, uh, privacy uh, things. If it is, then do it to the max that the privacy will give you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are pretty uh, common kind of problems that I, I I've encountered for sure yeah especially as a data scientist when I int uh, interact with data engineer I, I I can totally feel you're talking about me I want all the data I don't want you to delete all the table and also sometimes people want you to build a pipeline you mentioned sometimes you need to push back so when you work with software engineers or data scientists, how do you communicate those type of trade-offs? Trade how do you push back uh, their requests? That's a good one. So I think there's a couple things there. A, a big part of that, especially if you're earlier in your career, uh, is to work with your manager yeah. and really <laughs> leverage your managers for support in those situations. Because a lot of times in the big organizations, if you're a junior engineer and you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. They're going to be like, no, you're going to do that. Right. And then that's where you want to really work with your manager to work on that kind of stuff. If you're more of a senior engineer or you're kind of working and you feel like you have a, a, a pretty good reasoning there, then uh, the big thing I do in those situations is I kind of come up with a design doc for them of being like, okay, this is why we're not doing this pipeline because if we do if we do this data model over here, this more complete, robust model, it will answer that question as well as like like a lot of other questions, right? And kind of selling people on the robustness of like another data model, right? And uh, depending, but like it, and there's also like how you push back and why you push back can be different depending on the circumstance. Mm -hmm. Like because the other thing that could often be the case is like they're asking for a pipeline that just isn't valuable enough to write. That like that like uh, and then in those cases you want to explain to them like why you're prioritizing other work over that work, right? And because 
you get a lot of low value requests like as a data engineer because like you you're in high demand and everyone wants data mm-hmm. and uh you have to prioritize very efficiently and you know and you can that means saying no to a lot of stuff and uh so that can be the other kind of thing so it's usually the requests are either like incomplete right because they're kind of like asking a too specific question or they're not valuable right or uh, and um i have i've yet to i've yet to have one that was like um like kind of too complete where they're like where they were asking and a lot of times if they're too complete uh that's actually a good thing for data engineers because then like we can kind of work with that and be like kind of pare it down to be like okay this is actually what we can deliver on realistically as opposed to like give me this big universe of data right (laughs) and uh usually requests are going to fall into one of those three buckets right and you push back for different reasons in those Mm -hmm. cases Cool. Yeah. Um, so you, when you collaborate with data scientists, what are your biggest frustrations? Oh, biggest frustrations. That's a good one. Like, um, there's a couple there, I think. One, I would say when data scientists are very hands off or they like they expect like 100 percent of the data quality um Oh, or the data quality and validation to come from me. They like they don't like if a data scientist like doesn't want to get their like hands dirty with like writing SQL to like check like okay this data is good right and they are like no that's the data engineer's job. That I find that frustrating because of the fact that like data scientists generally have more business context and business yeah. domain. So like that's where like I like as a data engineer I often don't have enough of the domain knowledge to even know if the data is right. Right. And so that validation, I've, but I've worked with data scientists who are very hands off on that. And they're like, no, you got to figure that out. And uh, and so that kind of process of like, because uh, that validation process, especially after you make a new pipeline, is very collaborative as it should be. Right. Because kind of the simpler things like around like column counts and nulls and duplication and stuff like that is very more on the data engineer. Right. Because it's like, like that, that stuff you can do regardless of knowing what the domain knowledge is, right? But for the more nuanced validation, that stuff lands a lot more on the data scientist, right? Yeah. And uh, and I think that that kind of process is is one that's like that the, uh, of everything. I would say that that is the thing that like I found to be like my biggest frustration mm-hmm. is that because like I view that as more of a collaborative effort, and some data scientists don't view it that way. Yeah. Um, I'd say another kind of one is around like one-off requests, right? <laughs> and being like, hey, can you pull data for this? Can you just do that? Like, and like, Oh my God, I'm so guilty of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, and that uh, kind of process is because I think sometimes data scientists don't, uh, they kind of underestimate the level of effort yeah. for some of those things, right? Where they're like, oh, hey, can you pull this data and like, and just, you know, put this in, you know, put this into some fancy table that already exists, obviously, right? It's not like anything like that, right? Um, I, uh, I think that that's another thing that data scientists need to like remember is that, that there is um, like, there's effort there and that like a lot of that stuff should happen like in quarterly planning, like, Obviously, that's not always going to be the case because business requirements change and sometimes there are really pressing things and data engineers need to, you know, drop what they're doing and do that instead. Like those ad hoc requests aren't ever going to be zero, right? That's there's no that's only in like some weird, perfect, weird utopian world that that would be the case. Right. And so like but having a good balance there so that like because data engineers really care about like long-term scalability and long-term infrastructure, right? Which actually can sometimes compete with the data scientist priority, which is delivering business value today, yeah. right? <laughs> which can, those two things can be very uh, com- competing priorities. And so that's where you want to have a good balance there. And that's where uh, I think that that's another kind of piece that like, where if a data scientist is too pushy about like, oh, I got to answer this. I got to do this uh, model. I got to solve these problems like today. And we don't don't have the data yet so can you like that's a kind of an i guess another kind of related point but different is uh i've had a lot of data scientists like uh, kind of pressure me to like to cut corners actually on some of the data pipelines right mm-hmm. and to like to build a pipeline that's not as high quality as i would want it to be mm-hmm. and because they want to answer the question faster which which Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense why they want to do that. I think that that's where there is that kind of balancing act there of like long term um, stuff versus like trying to deliver business value today. So, yeah, I think those are 
Those yep. are on point. <laughs> so now, how do you set up some processes to balance the long-term and short-term goals?、Mm-hmm. Do you have some、uh, rule of thumbs? Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Like I,、uh, I think generally speaking,、uh, like and this is this was true at Facebook, Netflix. And Airbnb, but it's a little bit modified at Airbnb. But Facebook and Netflix, which was this is something that I found crazy that like all three, almost all three of these companies have like almost the same kind of rule where it's like about fifteen, fifteen to twenty percent of your time is like flex time, which for data engineers is gonna involve a couple different things. Like one would be like on call, like pipeline breaks, got to fix the pipeline, right? Another one is like ad hoc requests, like oh yeah, we gotta get data for this specific thing, right? And every quarter, like so, like about like that percentage of the time, you should be working on that stuff, like ad hoc requests, on call, all those things. And like、um, if you're spending more time than that, which has definitely happened in my career, then like what you need to look at is tech debt. Right, that's the big one. Generally speaking, I find on call to be the bigger of the two out of on call and ad hoc requests.、Mm-hmm. That on call usually takes a bigger chunk of that flex time, but that um, that um, ad hoc requests can also kind of go into that too much. And in those cases, like if it's ad hoc requests that are too much, then that's when you need to get the data scientists at the table、uh, for the in in like the next quarterly planning and be like, okay. What are your asks for the quarter, and we'll try to get them in, right? And so that we can budget that eighty percent of the time to actually try to solve your problems in a scalable way,、mm-hmm. right? And、uh, so I, I kind of think about it like that, where like it's like well, like one day a week should be on like tech debt, on call, and ad hoc requests. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. And you talked about you want to build high quality data pipeline. So, what、mm. is the definition of a high quality pipeline? Oh, that's a good one. There's a couple different things there. So, pipelines generally have an SLA, right? Which is, stands for Service Level Agreement, which is we will guarantee that the that the that the data of a pipeline is refreshed by a given time every day or every hour. And so, depending on the pipeline that. SLA could be very short. Like if there's like if it doesn't have very many upstreams, gen- generally it's very short, like a couple hours. Or but not always because it could also be a huge like、uh, just huge volume, right? And then it was, still takes a long time to process. But generally, like there's an SLA that like it meets consistently. Like the rule、uh, at Airbnb is like I think it's like 95% of the time it meets SLA. So that's a that's one one big requirement is like the data that's like a data freshness requirement, right? Um, I think another important piece of it is around correctness of the data, and that's where having a lot of those statistical checks and a lot of that stuff in place is also a very important piece of it. I think another important piece is around impact. <laughs> that's one that sometimes people forget about. Is that like, yeah, like you can have good data that's fresh and reliable and correct, but if no one's using it, it's not a good pipeline. It's just not a good pipeline, right? And、uh, so I think that that's like another good measure. Is an impact is an interesting one, right? Because、um, impact can be in a couple different ways, right? It could be that like you might have a table that is just used by a lot of data scientists to answer questions, right? Or it could be that you own data that is fed into like a machine learning model. That makes decisions that impact revenue, or that impact growth, or impact like security, or something like that, right? And like it changes the behavior of like the online system. You can have things like that as well.、Um, those are kind of like the the two big ones that are like it's either like their an- data should be answering like a strategic question, or it should be being used to make decisions by machine learning.、Mm-hmm. Like, and if it's it should be in one of those two buckets for the most part.、Um, and yeah. Like, I think that those are like the big kind of things. Like if you have all of that, then you've written a high quality data pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> so, talking about impact,、uh, what is some data engineering project you built, you did that has a very high impact? For example, save millions of dollars. Yeah, for sure. So.、Uh, One of the things that I was working on um, at uh, at Facebook, right, was this machine learning pipeline. What it did was it determined which notifications to send to you, right? It was an ML model that, like, so it was like the personalization model for your notifications at Facebook. One of the things that is was kind of crazy about that pipeline was the fact that, like,、uh, the training set was at the notification level, which is. Very, very.、Uh, uh, there's a lot of a lot of data every day in, in terms of like how many notifications Facebook sends. So 
there was two things that was happening there. It was like, so you, you had to join the notifications to the, to the notification features. That was a, that was a big part of the pipeline was that join. And, uh, so what I did was, um, so that, like that join was getting slower and slower and slower. And it was making, uh, the, the, the machine learning model, like make worse decisions because the, the data is not as fresh. And, but also it was also um, causing all the other pipelines in our namespace to be behind because it was consuming so much compute that we were running out of computers and that like we actually needed to like, um, and, and for a little while what we did, and it was a crazy trade-off, right? Cause it was like, we were like, okay, do we just have this run less often so that all our other pipelines are good? But that comes at a trade-off of like, okay, now our notification machine learning is, you know, less fresh again. And that, that that's also bad. And so what I did was, uh, I figured out a way to optimize that join, right? Using this thing called an SMB join, which is a sorted bucket, oh, a sorted merge bucket join, right? It just, which is a way to um, do a join of two data sets. As long as both data sets are sorted and bucketed on the same keys, then they can, you can join them together in a very efficient way. Like, because normally when you join two data sets, you have this thing called shuffle that happens, which is like a very expensive thing that normally happens where like it randomizes things and kind of like puts it all together and then it merges everything back together in like the, in the thing called a, it's like the map and reduce steps, right? And so I, I uh, converted it over to that. And then that was one thing I did. And then the other thing that I did was I migrated the whole thing to Spark because it was all on Hive and Hive is slow and terrible. Mm -hmm. And so those things together gave um, the notifications team 30% of their compute back wow. every, uh, every day. So it, 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 it did two things. I, one, it, uh, it made it so the machine learning model uh, was able to train every day and not mm -hmm. get behind. And two, it also made all the other pipelines in our namespace not be behind because it made it so that we actually had compute again. And uh, so that was, yeah, that was, um, so that was the thing uh, that I did like at Facebook, like, like right after I got promoted to level four, that mm -hmm. was like a project I worked on. It was, that was an interesting one. That one was like, one of the things that was really challenging about that project was yeah. that the dev cycles were incredibly long because the data was so large that like, um, uh, I had to like kick off a pipeline and I could look at it like, like 24, 25 hours later. And I was just like, Oh, did it run? I don't know. Like, did it run? And like, uh, and, uh, so like kind of testing that stuff out and trying to get that right was like infuriating. Cause I was like, Oh, I missed something or, or like it like runs for 18 hours and then it OOMs. And I'm like, what is going on right now? Why is this happening? And so there was a lot of things like that that were uh, interesting about that project that like were, but it really unlocked a lot of stuff and it made it so that like we got everything back and p people thought I was kind of like a little mini hero because they're like, wow, because then all these other like kind of problems that were happening because of this one big pipeline because other people were yelling at me about like why all these other metrics were behind. Mm -hmm. And the only reason they were behind is because we didn't have any compute. Right. And then it was like, yeah, because this one big, this, this ginormous job was just is hogging all the compute. And uh, and so it was able to solve a lot of different problems at, like uh, in in like one kind of shot, which was, yeah, I feel very, very happy about that. This one, one of the things I feel very proud about doing because it was like just such a crazy problem, too. Right? I was like, this is some really, really big data. Yeah, like, that's, <laughs> that's really awesome. So now we talk about this big accomplishments. What are some mistakes you made um, in your early career? Yeah. Okay. In my early career, um, I think a couple different things. Like, like especially if I look back, like especially like like 2014, 2015, when I was like n I hadn't moved into the Bay. I I grew up in Utah for to the, for the listeners. <laughs> um, uh, I think one of my, one of the mistakes for me like early on in my career was actually just not thinking broad enough. For example, like when I graduated, I was like where do I apply? Right. And then like, I was like, initially I just applied to like the, the companies nearby, right. The, the companies that were nearby my house. Cause I was like, Oh, well, because I can go work there. Right. And I, I guess like one of the things that I regret about that is that like, I didn't, I wasn't thinking broad enough about my career. And I think I could have like, I could have just uh, applied to other places and just like, uh, figured other things out and like been able to like have, um, cause that's what ended up happening for me. was that like, 
because I didn't do that, I wasn't thinking broadly about my career. What I ended up doing was I just job hopped a lot because I was like, I went to a company. I was like, oh, I'm unhappy. Okay, next company. Okay, next company, next company. Right. And I just like my first two years of my career, I got I, had, I worked at four companies. Right. Which yeah. is like and that's like a lot. Right. right. It's like, like like that's like uh, my average of like six month tenure there. Right. And like, I mean, I, I think that that was one of the things that like I needed to realize was that like that I needed to just aim a little bit higher, right? And like, and realize that like, I, maybe I needed to move for that and maybe I needed to change some circumstances for that. Mm-hmm. So I think that was like one. I think uh, some other things were I didn't ask enough questions as well. I think that, um, especially like in my first job, like I worked like directly with the CEO on, on like building out these Tableau dashboards and all these interesting things. And like, I would essentially just do what he told me to do, right? And I just do it. And it was like, you know, just like, okay, yeah, I'll build that out. I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that thing. I'll do that thing. And like, I, um, I, I feel like I didn't like, ask enough of like the why right and that like and the way I learned the why was like by like later in my career just failing at it right or like learning through experience right Mm -hmm. where like you can also you can learn through experience or you can learn through advice you can learn through like you know there's a lot of different ways you can learn like these hard lessons right and I think that like that was another big thing was that I didn't ask enough questions and like Mm -hmm. I was just like so focused on just like getting the job done because that was another thing that I I felt like I had uh which is which took me a very long time to unwind actually which is something that I unwinded a couple like even like in the last like 2 years it's been very recent is that like early in my career and even later into my career I had this like this problem in my head right where like I equated like my worth to my productivity right so I was like I am only worthy if I am being productive right yeah. and so that it got me like laser focused right where I was like okay in order for me to feel good, I need to write code. In order for me to feel good, I need to like have a, a result, right? And I need to be able to do those things. And I think that that kind of like, uh, kind of, you know, misaligned mindset was a thing that caused me to like not ask enough questions and not like uh, be open, be as open to things, right? And because I like, I'm like, okay, I want to just be productive in my spot and, you know, do that. And I think that was kind of like another big thing that I, I noticed like that's a big thing to remember everyone who's listening like you are worthy regardless of how many lines of code you write right yeah. it's important to remember that and like because it helps you kind of like step back and reevaluate your life and really come back and enjoy your life and so I know some of you probably feel that way too so yeah, yeah I that way. <laughs> like some days if I didn't write any code mm-hmm. or my model doesn't work it made me feel I didn't do anything or I I don't deserve this data scientist title. But actually, when you're maybe you're taking a walk, take a, you know, have a distance from what you're working on, maybe you have a better idea. And also, I made the same mistake. I didn't ask enough questions. So, but actually, that's counterintuitive, right? You feel like mm-hmm. uh, if I do some high level planning, asking questions, that's just wasting my time. But then you go build something that is not what your team need mm-hmm. definitely definitely yeah. like and uh and that and that's it goes back to that other thing we were talking about earlier about like coding too much too early right, right? and like it, it's related to that and like mm-hmm. that mindset can actually cause you to do that right? right and cause you to like feel like you need to be productive in that way mm-hmm. when that's actually what you no, you don't need to be doing right now yeah. right and so yeah for sure yeah i love that you mentioned this realization definitely want to talk more about mental health and work-life balance later yeah. and i uh, also have some questions uh people submitted from our linkedin posts yeah folks are asking what are some core data engineering skills that uh, junior data engineers must know or yeah. um, for example if you want to grow to a senior data engineer what are the change of skills that you need to have yeah that's a good one like i think for i'll answer the first one there that junior data engineer mm-hmm. skill set like uh you really like need to know definitely sql sql is a super important one that's like uh it's also called sql i don't know like some people call it sql some people call it sql (laughs) just want to make sure that people realize that like it's a weird one that has like two names uh that's a big one because that way you use that to like mostly like dive into data and like kind of torture data to tell you what you want to know from it uh that's a big one i think another big one is python i'd say uh python and like learning how python works uh Every other recommendation I would make here is 
kind of it depends on the company i think like i think sql and python are pretty much guaranteed but other things that you might need to know are like like but it depends it depends on the company uh you might need to know a thing called spark apache spark which is like a compute framework that makes it easy to compute very large data sets you might need to know something called snowflake or bigquery which are like other ways of computing big large data sets you might need to know a thing called airflow you might need to know a thing called luigi those are um orchestrators those are ways to like run jobs on a regular basis yeah. and uh but these are all these all depend on like what company you're working for and where they're located like in in the bay area and like if you're working in big tech then uh definitely learning spark and airflow those two are very very important because those are pretty much ubiquitous across like all the big tech companies and um and so uh that's what it would be for there but like a lot of like the smaller companies that need data engineering spark is like too much because a lot of times that's like there's a lot of infrastructure that you need to put in place to like run a spark cluster so you want to like uh, a lot of those companies are more likely to use like a, a contractor like snowflake or bigquery or something like that to do their like computation and so Kind of, it really depends on the company for like the technologies, but the languages are definitely SQL and Python. And if you want to be adventurous, learn Scala. I, I've been doing Scala for the last couple of years and uh, it's pretty cool, especially like if you know Spark, like Scala Spark is really fun. Yeah. And uh, from junior data engineer to senior data engineer, how do you go to the next level? Yeah, that's a good one. So I would, I think about it this way, like uh, junior data engineers generally are scoped with knowing like a very specific uh like doing a very specific pipeline right or a very small simple specific pipeline whereas like a senior engineer is going to be tasked with maybe building out a whole data model like maybe there's five pipelines that we need to write here or like and we need to think about like think about it in like a bigger picture way so a big thing that you're going to want to learn to like go from junior to senior is things around like data architecture and data modeling and like the correct ways to do those things right and like how you can uh build models that answer questions robustly and a lot of stuff like that i think those are those are the big things that's like the the big differentiator i would say is that I guess the other the other big thing is that like junior engineers generally are just given a task and then they accomplish the task, right? Whereas senior engineers need to come up with the tasks a lot of yeah. the time, right? They need to like figure out like what the tasks are and take take a requirement, break it into tasks and then walk through it and and then maybe even assign it out. And so like being able to like deconstruct requirements into tasks is another thing that I think is important. Mm -hmm. And that's like in that is a lot of that is actually soft skills, right? Because yeah. you need to like communicate with people and you need to like make sure that like you have your, everyone's on the same page and keeping your stakeholders up to date and stuff like that. And that's like, those things are very important for being a senior engineer. And I, and that's just generally how it works is like, as you grow in your career, technical skills become less important and soft mm -hmm. skills become more important. And, uh, and, and that's definitely the case to go from junior to senior as well. Yeah. And how do you acquire those soft skills? Yeah, that's that's a good one. I think uh, a couple different ways. Like for me, I um, had a really good mentor who really helped me. Finding good mentors is good. Yeah, um, his name's Jatender. Jatender was an amazing mentor for me. Like, and he just really taught me a lot about like how to interact with people, how to like push back, how to do these things. Like, so one is like finding a, finding good mentors. Um, I think another one is just like just making sure that you communicate with people and like learn how to like communicate with people and just like talk with people and like um and that's another big one is just like by like remembering that your job isn't just writing code right yeah. and like if you just like practice and like where you're communicating and talking with people just from uh doing that i think you actually get a lot of like you, you learn a lot from just experience in that way as well like it's it's like one it's one of those things that like i realized that like i've gotten a lot better at but like i've never like done like leak code for soft skills or whatever right <laughs> like i I've wish never, there, there is leak code for soft there skills there should be there really should be there really should be and like but i've never there's it's never been something for me that like i feel like i have like tried to directly get better at it's always been i've gotten better at soft skills through kind of like osmosis right where it's been like okay i want to be like the people around me because the people around me seem like they are pretty good at this stuff and i want to learn the skills from them and uh that's just one way to do it i think there's probably more direct ways to do it as well i just am not as aware of those yeah yeah 
Thanks for sharing that. And you mentioned that you have this mentor that played a big role in your career. So how、yeah. did you meet this mentor? So I met him in 2016. He was actually my manager at Facebook.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked with him at Facebook initially,、um, and、uh, he was.、Um, He's really cool. Like he's a very big entrepreneur guy. I'm very entrepreneurial myself, and、uh, he was、uh, he was my manager there for a while. And like he was really really inspiring. It just it, it blew my mind. Like just working with him, and I was like, whoa! Like because every other manager that I had before Jutender, I was like. Managers kind of suck, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, 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 what? Why are they even here, right? Like, what are they doing, right? But then, like, after I like like was working with Jatender, I was like, it just changed my perspective. Like, I was like, okay, managers can actually be really amazing. And then, so I was working at Facebook for a while, and then Jatender like left to go to a startup, and then I was working at Facebook, and then he went from the startup to Netflix, and then. I when I left Facebook, I actually joined Jatender's team again at Netflix. So Jatender was my manager at Facebook and at Netflix,、mm. like both companies, and、uh, and that was and just being able to work with him so much and like learning from him and just learning all those things is just really great. Like it was like a really wonderful way to learn. Like and and that's a big thing to do is like if you can find these mentors, like that is. It's a blessing. It's a huge blessing. I feel very, very grateful to have that, to be lucky in that way too. And like, you can also seek them out too. You can find mentors from. There's all sorts of different ways to find mentors as well. Like, yeah. For example, follow Zach, and he posts advice about data science, career, mental health. Daily. Yeah. Oh yeah. I feel like you're mentoring all the followers on LinkedIn. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. For sure. For sure. <laughs> so if you say,、uh, for example, if you have some mentors at work,、uh, what are some advice? You usually give them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's interesting at Airbnb. I actually have a mentor. I I have a mentor and I'm a mentor.、Mm-hmm. I have both, right?、Yeah. Where I um I have a mentor named Anurag at, at Airbnb. He's been wonderful as well. He's helped me. Like a big thing he's helped me with is like work life balance and like. He's always like the big thing he tells me. He's like Zach, do not make short-term optimizations at the expense of your long-term goals. Right? It's hard. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's so hard. It's、yeah. so hard because like a lot of times you're like, oh, I want that promotion or I want that bonus or I want whatever. Right?、You're、like there's something that's like in the short term that you want, but then like there's also these like longer-term horizon things that you want to do, and like so that's that's pretty cool. And then like I also like mentor people. Um, there as well, and like some big things that I work on with them are like、uh, they're actually pretty similar to like what I post about on LinkedIn. Like,、uh, like one is around like how to get to the next level, right?、Yeah. How to get promoted, right? What is the like what is the impact that you were gonna need to be promoted, right? That's a big one that I work on. Like, is just like career growth.、Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is around like yeah, like soft skills, like how to like. Grow in that way, and like how to. Another one that I think is important is around like how to grow influence without authority,、mm-hmm. like that like whole concept around like how do you like be able to get your ideas and get people to buy into your ideas without being like, oh yeah, I'm the super senior awesome engineer, and you have to listen to me because I have the biggest title, right? And like,、uh, it's more like you know, no, I like, you you can kind of convince people that your ideas are good because they're good,、mm-hmm. not because like you have a fancy title,、yeah. right? And like if you can do that, that. Is a、uh, that is a very very powerful thing that like will can impact so many different aspects of your life not、yeah. not not just in your career like also like in your personal life like all over all over the place.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like amazing skill. So, what is your best advice about influencing without、um, having a title? Yeah,、um, I think there's a couple things there. Like、uh, one is being very clear, right? Being like being able to be like okay, like. Being being clear and concise, I think, are the two big ones. Because I think a lot of times, like engineers, will get into this bucket where they're like,、uh, "I need to build this diagram and this design and all this stuff, and I need to show like the like most intricate level of detail on it, right?" And it's like a lot of times when people look at those diagrams, their eyes just sort of like glaze over, and they're like, "What's going on here? <laughs> like, what's going on with this diagram?" And like,、uh, so. Being able to be concise about like what the value is, but also very clear about how you're going to do it, is、um, and th- and it, it takes some practice to get the right level of detail there, right? Because and it also depends on the people, because some sometimes like、uh, and and that's where kind of 
emotional intelligence and like understanding people is important. Like, cause some people to convince them, they want a diagram. They want to see all the guts and the, the pieces of it. Yeah. Whereas like other people, they want more of like a concise format. And then for other people, they want more of like, what's the impact? Like, why, like, why should we be doing this anyways? Like mm-hmm. how much money are we going to say? What's the dollars and cents? Right. right. And, uh, if you, there's like a couple different ways that you can kind of interact with people and, that's one of those things that you kind of learn the right way to do it from like experience, right? right. And from like, uh, like, cause you can kind of read people and understand like, okay, this is like a technical person who wants a diagram. Okay, this is a business person. They want the impact numbers, right? Stuff like that. Right. So know what they care about and then speak their language. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so you worked at facebook netflix and airbnb how do you compare your experience working across that's good that's good uh i think i'll I'll use some of their core tenants from each one that (laughs) will uh i think that will kind of uh highlight some stuff like um so at facebook right uh the core tenant there is uh move fast and break things right that well they changed it actually like it was move fast and break things like my first year there and then they changed it to move fast and build things (laughs) but i was like that's lame that's lame (laughs) no i'm gonna keep it move fast and break things sorry like uh but like uh and that really uh is a big part of the culture there right which is good and bad like because um on the good side it like um helps like just create a lot of really good value very quickly people are have a sense of urgency around it and like you can deliver on a lot of value there and that's like kind of in the culture there which is is good the trade-off with that though is that it generally creates a lot more tech debt right and like you have there's a lot of like a lot of bad pipelines a lot of just proliferation of bad pipelines and then you're a data engineer and you're like why is there like, why do I have like I, I, all these pipelines that like, I don't think anyone's using, but like people built them at some point because they were trying to move fast. Yeah. But Facebook also had the best food. Like if we're going like, I mean, I don't know though. I actually don't know for sure because I've never been in the Airbnb office, but mm-hmm. comparing Facebook and Netflix, Facebook had the best food. <laughs> but uh, um, so some other things that I uh, thought were kind of interesting about Facebook was I, uh, one of the things I really liked about it was that like, um, when I worked there, uh, a lot of the work I did had like an obvious impact. Like I knew like, okay, because I worked in growth for the most part, I worked in growth and notifications. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was like, okay, this effort that I did created, we got this many more people to, to come back to Facebook because of this effort. Right. And so like, we had like a, an actual number there. There was like, you know, million, two million, three million, whatever number of people came back more because of notifications. Right. And then like, I was like, okay, cool. That's like, that's like a real tangible number, right? Which is, I really liked that about um, Facebook was like, because it was like, oh, cool. Like you actually felt like you knew what, you knew how, how much you were impacting the business. So I'd say that's kind of like how Facebook works. Uh, Netflix, their core tenant, right? Is um, freedom and responsibility, right? That's what they're all about. And radical candor, those are the two things. Uh, the things I liked about Netflix is that Netflix is very entrepreneurial, right? And that like a lot of the projects and decision-making is actually done by the ICs. It's not like as like Facebook and Airbnb are a little bit more top down where like the the what what we need to like what we need to build is kind of comes from my manager who comes from their manager comes from their manager right and eventually rolls up to the CEO or whatever. Uh, but like um, at Netflix it was more like we were giving a, we were given objectives and then how we reached those objectives was determined by us actually, which was good and bad. Like yeah. I mean uh, like it's good in the fact that like uh, like we, we're closer to the ground and we have a little bit more context. So like sometimes we can actually come up with better ideas than like having it be like a dictate from the director or whatever. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, the thing that was harder was if you're working cross-functionally and you have multiple different teams that you need to work with, uh, they might not want to work with you because like they don't have that, like they don't have that alignment as much, right? Uh, um, from like the different uh, directors or whatever, because like there's a little bit more freedom focused there, yeah. right? And so there's a lot more debate at Netflix around mm-hmm. like, okay, d- like debate with me about the value, right? And then like, and, and how to do those things. So that was a little bit trickier. But I mean, I liked it. I really liked it a lot because one of the things I really liked about it was 
I had the most freedom at Netflix for sure. The whole freedom and responsibility thing is so true. Like, so I shipped code in, um, in nine different languages at Netflix. Wow. Right. And so, uh, that was really cool. Like I was really happy about that. I was like, Oh, this is, this is crazy. Like I'm like, the, like so that was really cool because I really like just having like a diverse dose of technology. Right. And, um, so that was really cool. And like, um, I also was able to do both like data engineering and software engineering at Netflix because I uh, did a lot of like data pipelining work in Scala Spark, but I also worked with like Spring Boot and Node.js and Express.js and like all those like REST API kind of stuff. And um, I also worked in like machine learning. I did a lot of like uh, I did a lot of like logistical regression and random forest modeling. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah, yeah, I did like all sorts of different like cool projects. It was like, mm-hmm. like when I think back on my time at Netflix, I was like, that was so diverse. Yeah. But that was like that was actually one of the things that also ultimately became a problem was that like I was working on all these like very diverse things, and then it was like. But my team was mostly like a data engineering team. Mm-hmm. And then like I kind of became an island where I was like I had all these all these like really valuable important work, but. Uh, there was no one else to go on call with me for a while, right? <laughs> and I was like, what is going on here? Like, I know I love this work, but yeah. like, this is this is a lot right now. Yeah. And um, and so that like, that was kind of another kind of interesting kind of piece of like that freedom element, right? Which cuts both ways, right? It's freedom and responsibility, mm-hmm. not just freedom. Right. <laughs> and so um, I'd say that's kind of like how Netflix was. Um, uh, Airbnb, like... I feel that like I don't have a complete picture of Airbnb for a couple of reasons. Like one is like I have only been there for nine months. But another one is like I have never been to the Airbnb office. No, it's still still not open. Like still, even though I live really close to it now, like I, I mean, I on my coffee walks that I go on, on uh, with my LinkedIn following and everything, like I even walk by the office and I'm always like so close, but so far away. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, I, I don't really know as much about like the office culture at, at Airbnb, but mm-hmm. the anyways, the, the cultural tenant that I really, there's two at Airbnb that I really like. One is be a serial entrepreneur. Mm. That's one. And then the other one is be a host. Those are the oh, two. Um, and what they mean, right? Be a serial entrepreneur is like really try to think out of the box. Try to like. Uh, what is a cereal? Can you tell us? Cereal. Okay. It's <laughs> cereal as in like what you eat for breakfast, not cereal as in like one, two, three, four, five. Like it's yeah. like the like the actual thing you eat for breakfast. And, it's, and it, it was actually like early in Airbnb's history. Like they were actually about to run out of money. And what they did was it was in 2008. They created like these. Um, these cereals, like these political branded cereals, like um, uh, one, one of them was called like Obama O's, yeah. right? And then they sold them and they made like a lot of money from it. And that actually, that whole thing was what convinced the investors to give Airbnb another round of funding, right? And so that became, and that kind of like weird thing where it's like they sold, Airbnb literally sold cereal in 2008. And now like, that's not what they do at all anymore, right? But like, uh, it's that kind of like out of the box thinking that Mm -hmm. they really kind of encourage people to do, right? right? Uh, That's a big thing. And then be a host is the other one. I actually really like be a host. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's been interesting thing for me be a host is a very uh it's, it's generally like be kind right yeah. be gracious like you know give people space to talk right and uh and and really uh let like really have a good open meetings like where people like let everyone let everyone talk don't try to like dominate meetings and stuff mm-hmm. like that that one has been interesting for me because like uh it's been a little bit trickier for me to understand the be a host <laughs> especially because it somewhat comes in conflict with like uh the radical candor and like the um stuff from netflix right because on netflix it's like if you have feedback for someone just say it just 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 tell them just tell them tell them their baby's ugly right just do it <laughs> right <laughs> and uh but like uh at um at airbnb it's like okay i need i, I know i still need to give feedback but I got to be like a little bit more like kind about it, a little bit more like gracious about it. Yeah. Right. And I think that that has been, it's been good. I've actually liked that about it. It's mm-hmm. been like, I'm like, cool. This is, this is an inter- a good change of pace. I like it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that like, that's, that that's kind of like how, how Airbnb has been. It's mm-hmm. been, it's been pretty great. Like uh, I, I've, I've really enjoyed working at all three companies actually. They've all been, very different, very different. Uh, I'd say between the three that Facebook and Airbnb are more similar Mm -hmm. and Netflix is more different, like between the three, like where like, uh, and like another, some other kind of tidbits I've noticed about the companies is, uh, like Netflix, uh, they, 
they, they don't generally hire people with not very many years of experience, right? You have to be kind of more of a senior engineer to work there. So what that means is that like, your coworkers are going to be older. Like, like, and uh, that was actually something for me, like, because when I uh, started at Netflix, I was, uh, I was 24 when I started at Netflix. And like, most of my coworkers were like 35, right? 35, 40, like in that, in that age, age range, right? And uh, that was, that was kind of hard for me, actually, because I was like, whoa, like, I kind of want to make friends here, but it's like kind of hard. I don't <laughs> I don't relate to like having kids. I don't right. know. I'm a young kid. I'm, I'm, I'm a kid myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, and so uh, that's where uh, Airbnb and Facebook are a little bit younger, because like when I was at Facebook, like I, was, I started fa- at Facebook when I was 22 and I felt very like I fit in, like I was like in the middle of the curve, right? There was yeah. people younger than me and people older than me at Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas at, at Netflix, it felt like I was like the baby, right? I was yeah. like, and, and Airbnb is more like uh, more like Facebook in that way, where uh, it's, skewed, it's skewed a little bit younger compared to Netflix. But mm-hmm. that's another thing I kind of noticed about the, the companies and their like, kind of like their makeup of like who's in the companies. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for the very detailed you know, walkthrough of the company culture and your experiences. Yep. Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with Zach Wilson. Please go to part two where we'll talk more about mental health, work-life balance, building audience on LinkedIn, and the future of data engineering. I'll see you there.